Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our message for today is entitled, We Believe in the Ordinances. As you know, we are presently undertaking a survey of the basic tenets of the historic Baptist faith as represented in the Articles of Faith of historic Baptist churches and contemporary primitive Baptist churches. I really appreciate the feedback that I've received on this series in particular. In modern times, radio gets very, very little feedback. You can't be a Christian radio host for the feedback or you'd quit in a short amount of time. It's a labor of love. And this particular series is one in which I have received more positive feedback than any other series in over 15 years of broadcasting. And that makes me quite satisfied. I really appreciate it. If you've reached out to me, sent me a Facebook message or a text message or an email. I'm thankful that you're listening. I'm thankful for you. And I pray that these messages are a blessing to you. As we have studied through these articles over the past few weeks, we have used as our source material two statements of faith that represent what you generally find in a historic Baptist statement of faith and a primitive Baptist statement of faith. Sometimes we call this the abstract of principles, though most of the time we have them referred to in our church documentation as the articles of faith. I'm sure you're well familiar with this to the point of saying, yes, we know, but we are using our own Articles of Faith from Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, which dates back to 1808, and the Articles from Ebenezer Primitive Baptist Church in Westover, the church I grew up at, and this church dates back to 1868. Our subject matter for today shifts the focus from what we might call doctrinal or theological concepts to ecclesiological concepts. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church, the root there being the familiar Greek word for assembly, which translates church in our Bibles. The English word church, the word church in English, comes from a word, an Old English word, meaning the Lord's house. It was the word kirk. And this Lord's house, this church, is an assembly. More specifically, the concept we look at today are the ordinances of the Lord's Church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, something that we also call communion. This is a broadcast in which we're going to take two statements from each statement of faith, two articles from the statement of faith, and combine into one, just because it's helpful to do so in the time that we have. Today we look at Articles 9 and 13 from our Statement of Faith at Flint River. We believe that baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the washing of the saints' feet are ordinances of Jesus Christ, and that true believers are the only subjects of these ordinances, and the true mode of baptism is immersion. Article 13 from our Statement of Faith, we believe that none but regularly baptized members have a right to commune at the Lord's table, meaning that you have to become a member of the church prior to taking communion. This is the historic position that was held by Baptists in most every denomination in church history until our modern age. And then from Ebenezer's Statement of Faith, Article 7, 
We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of Jesus Christ, and true believers are the only subjects of the ordinances, and the true mode of baptism is immersion. They put a lot of information in that statement, Article 7. Article 11 of their Statement of Faith addresses the washing of the saints' feet. We believe that washing the saints' feet was ordained by Jesus Christ to be done by His Church in a church capacity until His second coming. As we begin today, we want to define our terms. An ordinance in modern times can have reference to a law or legislation. One common definition, both modern and historic, is that of a decree— And so an ordinance is something that has been decreed. The OED, the Oxford English Dictionary of Historical Principles, supplies this definition. This English word ordinance is a practice or usage authoritatively enjoined or prescribed, especially a religious or ceremonial observance. The word ordinance is often used by Baptists, and just for the sake of being thorough, some traditions prefer the word sacrament. So as a Baptist, I'll say that we believe in two ordinances, which we'll clarify in just a moment, the Lord's Supper and baptism, but other Christian traditions would say that there are sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and this is one of the major differences between the historic Baptist and some other groups, such as the historic Presbyterians. And that's not a knock at either camp. That's simply the history of it. And might I just interject a little bit of a tangent here? When we're addressing a matter of history, we should be able to discuss whatever happened in history disconnected from emotion or bias or spin or attack. And so if I say that it's a concept held by Presbyterians or Catholics or Methodists, that's not a criticism of any of those groups, but I'm simply trying to accurately present to you what the historical record is, whether about Baptist or any other group. History is something that we need to be well-versed in, and the best way to handle history is without bias. And offense and emotion. It's a matter of the facts of the situation, and we just want to learn them and present those facts for our own understanding, our own education, and our own enlightenment. Now, as some traditions prefer the word sacrament, we do not prefer to use that term because of the connotation among some groups as a sacrament being the means of grace— Now, we recently engaged in some thought on that subject, the means of grace, here on words of grace. And if you'll recall, some consider that term to mean things that are salvific, that communicate saving grace, and others simply use that term to describe things which aid in living a Christian life. The title of that broadcast was Grace for Grace, and obviously As believers in salvation only by the grace of God, if we talk about what others call the means of grace, singing, preaching, listening to messages, reading the Word, communion, baptism, etc., we would put those in the second category as things which aid in living a Christian life. Another way to say that would be this is practical— rather than positional, or you could say that this is experimental or experiential, rather than legal or positional. But because of the connection with means of grace and the word sacrament, Baptists generally refrain from using that term, 
and we choose to use the word ordinance instead. Now, by the way, if you're using a King James Bible, you know that the word ordinance is a word that is commonly used in the King James Bible. So that's actually a more biblical word to use anyway, the ordinances. Paul would say to the Corinthians to keep the ordinances as they were delivered unto them. Throughout the Old Testament, what was commanded in the ceremonial law was referred to as ordinances. And so we prefer that word also because it's just the biblical word for something that is commanded. Though, as we look at the ordinances today, we're looking at things which do represent the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're a little different than other commanded practices like preaching and singing and praying and gathering publicly. Now, regarding that term means of grace and sacrament, even though we avoid that word, and we're going to engage in a little bit of reasoning along these lines, certainly we would agree that baptism and the Lord's Supper aid in the Christian life. Prayer aids in the Christian life. The Word aids in the Christian life. Preaching and fellowship aids in the Christian life. But we don't want to confuse others, and so because of that, we use the word ordinance. Another point along those lines from dictionaries, an ordinance is a command, and sometimes people will say that an ordinance is merely a command, but the word sacrament has a supernatural connotation. Along those lines, while we don't affirm the supernatural nature of baptism or the Lord's Supper in some sort of a sense which communicates salvation to people— Should we view baptism as only or merely an ordinance in which nothing happens? No, that's probably an extreme, too. If you have obeyed Christ and you have been baptized, you know that there is something special that happens when you answer that good conscience towards God. Baptism, according to Peter, is the answer of a good conscience towards God, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience. God quickens you. He gives you life. You are born again, and you answer that by professing your faith in Him and being baptized. If you have been baptized, you know there's something special that happens. For one, you save yourself from this untoward generation by aligning yourself with Christ and becoming an official disciple. But the book of Acts promises the gift of the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 2, to as many as hear this message and believe it, and then repent and are baptized. Now they hear this message and they believe it because God has given them eternal life. The gospel brings the life and immortality that God has given them to light. And then they answer that good conscience as they are baptized. And as they are baptized, well, as you see in Acts chapter 2, they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In the apostolic era, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost involved miracles, and that's something that does not take place today. As the apostles began to die off the scene, so did all of those special apostolic gifts. But it also involved the Holy Spirit as the Comforter, as Jesus taught in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapters 14 through 16. In our day, in lack of apostles, we don't see the miracles in truth, but we do still have the presence of the Holy Spirit as comforter when we draw nigh and keep these commandments. So I believe that we experience a greater closeness with God through the Spirit when we obey Him by being baptized in His name. As a side point, 
along these lines, sometimes finer points fall through the cracks when we're forced into one of two extreme positions as a result of debate. But I'll leave that thought with you for extra. Now, communion, on the other hand, as we think about ordinance or sacrament, does it communicate anything to us? Is it merely a symbol or is it something more than that? While communion does not save us in an eternal sense, as some people affirm, it does grant us special fellowship with Christ. Fellowship or communion with Christ is indeed a spiritual blessing that we can experience in our daily lives. We certainly experience this in communion. In fact, according to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup in the Lord's Supper, we are literally communing with the body and the blood of Christ. Now, to be very clear, listen to me carefully. In communion, the bread does not become the body. The wine does not become the blood of Christ. Transubstantiation is what that doctrine is called, and that is not true. It's bread when we eat it. It's bread when we digest it. It's wine when we drink it. It's wine when we digest it and process it. But that's not to say that we don't have a special fellowship or communion with Christ, his body and his blood, when we partake of communion. Notice this from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, Paul is making points about other things that were happening in the church at Corinth, but notice that statement. We commune with the body and the blood of Christ in the bread and the wine at communion. Guess what? That's why we call the Lord's Supper the communion service, because we are communing with him. Do you know what the word communion means? It means to commune with someone, but this word communion also translates into the word fellowship. The same Greek word translates at times into the word fellowship in English. So to fellowship is to commune. To commune is to fellowship. We fellowship with Christ in the communion service. So I do believe that there is something happening at communion spiritual, an interaction between you and your Lord through the Holy Spirit. While this isn't salvific, at the same time, I think it wrong to say that it's merely a command, merely a symbol. I think that he's present with us. Now, that should be no surprise to a Bible believer. When we sing in church, what happens to us? According to Ephesians 5, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but filled with the Spirit, speaking to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing ought to cause us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Men in the Bible are filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again. That's not referring to those filled with the Spirit passages as the new birth, It has reference to when the Holy Spirit is so poured out upon you that you are close to Him, He is powerful in you, and I think those of us that have followed Christ for a long time, we know what that feels like when we are filled with the Holy Ghost. Sometimes you might be moved to boldness, sometimes you might be moved to compassion, sometimes you might be moved to tears, you might be excited, you might be overcome with joy. We've experienced that over and over in our lives, and that is something that ought to take place in the communion service, just like it ought to take place in baptism. So we're careful to use the word ordinance, but at the same time to say they're merely commands 
we find that to be a bit too restrictive. God does fellowship with us as we participate in these commandments, as with every other commandment. That's why we go to church, to experience the presence of God in our hearts. There are blessings in the ordinances for us to experience, even though we are saved exclusively by grace, not by keeping the ordinances, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We are saved by grace. But again, there are blessings for us to experience. So let's revisit the statement of faith itself. I read for us two statements from two different forms of the articles of faith. We believe that baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the washing of the saints' feet are ordinances of Jesus Christ, and that true believers are the only subjects of these ordinances, and that the true mode of baptism is immersion. And we believe that none but regularly baptized members have a right to commune at the Lord's table. In those statements of faith, there were two things that you likely expected to hear, and one that might have been a surprise to you. You likely expected baptism and the Lord's Supper to be mentioned, but not foot washing. Because of that, we're going to consider foot washing first. You'll notice a slightly different take about foot washing in the two articles. The 1808 Statement of Faith lists it as an ordinance, whereas the other one, the more recent one, lists it as something that is ordained— and obviously those words share a common root, but it lists it separate as something that is ordained or commanded to be done in a church capacity. This is an area where historic Baptists and primitive Baptists through history have not had a general consensus. Foot washing was commonly practiced in the southeast, but it was not as commonly practiced in the north until more modern times. I have visited churches that don't have foot washing. It doesn't make them any less a church. And because of that, I don't, in my verbiage, describe foot washing personally as an ordinance, but a practice that we do at the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I draw that distinction because for it to be an ordinance, our identity as a New Testament church would be at stake, because that's how serious ordinances are, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the identity of the church is at stake. And historically, that would be a very troubling thing. And so I think the most accurate way to express what we think of it in 2023 would be to say that it's a practice we do at the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And it's also done at times outside of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. If you've offended someone greatly, then I would encourage you to go to their house if you've done something mean to them and ask to wash their feet on their front porch. Sit out there and wash their feet. There's nothing wrong with that. What better of a way to show that you are contrite than to wash their feet? You can do that outside of a church capacity, unlike communion or baptism that is always to be in a church capacity. Now, as a little bit of Baptist history in the United States, foot washing became far more popular through a Baptist movement in the Southeast United States referred to as the Separate Baptist. The Separate Baptists actually held to nine ordinances per their Wikipedia article, and one of those was foot washing. There were many other things that they considered to be ordinances. As Separate Baptists, the more revivalistic Baptists, and regular Baptists, the more staunch Baptists, came together in the 1700s, that practice was retained. Washing the saints' feet was retained far more universally in the Southeast. But it certainly biblical to do, regardless of the history of it, and many, many orders of faith include it somehow. Lately, I've noticed a bit of a mild resurgence in this practice. 
but to demonstrate its wide practice within Christianity at large, have you ever noticed on the calendar during Easter week, a week that many Christians call Holy Week, the day before Good Friday on your calendar is called Maundy Thursday. If you've got a calendar near you, look and see if Maundy Thursday is the name of Thursday before Easter on your calendar. Do you know what Maundy means? It actually means foot washing. Literally, Maundy Thursday means foot washing Thursday. And some Christians around the world have special foot washing services on that particular day, Maundy Thursday. But more important than church history, turning to the Bible, in John chapter 13, responding to the apostles debating which one of them was to be counted the greatest, Jesus instituted this practice to teach the servant attitude, not a lording attitude. Disciples are to have. And I remind you that the twelve were preachers. This is not a command to some supposed lower class of less than who's who individuals in the church. This was something that Jesus taught his ministry to do. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example to learn from, no, that you should do as I have done unto you. We are to learn from doing this example, not merely by reading it. He says in verse 17 of John 13, If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And so this is something that we are to routinely do to put in practice. It's awkward. It can be embarrassing. The first time you do that, you are humbled by it. And that's exactly what Jesus is intending. It is a humbling thing. And having participated in this for decades now, it is a time of tears and smiles and laughs and hugs. And it's hard to find something to draw a congregation together in Christian love quite like this practice of washing one another's feet. Now, by the way, back to the preachers. If you want to be a big preacher, serve. How does he teach his ministers to serve one another? By washing their feet and teaching them to wash others. If you want to serve, you won't want to be a big preacher. How amazing the wisdom of our Lord. On to the ordinances. The ordinance of baptism traces itself to Matthew chapter 28 and the commission of Christ to his disciples to go teach, baptize, and to teach. Or as Mark would have it, go into all nations and preach the gospel, Jesus says, to go, to teach, to baptize, and to teach them to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded us. And lo, he is with us always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This commission was given to the apostles, and through them we trust to the gospel ministry of every age. This is where we trace the ordinance. Baptism, to be clear, did predate this commission in the New Testament, but this is our explicit command to go and to baptize. Notice those who are baptized are those who were first discipled. Go and teach and baptize. The word teach shares a root in the original language with the word disciple. So to teach is to make a disciple. This affirms believers' baptism. Notice also, it is the preacher who is to go and teach and baptize, as Jesus gives this command to the eleven, not to the 120 at Pentecost or the 500 who saw Jesus resurrected at once, but Jesus commands the eleven. And we will discuss that in a future broadcast on ministerial authority. 
The ordinance of baptism is to occur at the entry into the church, not walking into the building, but as one professes their faith and is received as a member. Jesus made in the book of John and baptized more disciples than did John the Baptist, though he baptized not, but his disciples baptized. And so the making of a disciple and baptism are connected. And the final point that we'll make about baptism It represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why it is to be done by immersion, as every baptism in the New Testament was by immersion. Sprinkling won't do. They didn't sprinkle the body of Jesus. They buried the body of Jesus in the ground as they placed him in a tomb and rolled a stone over the door. And so we are buried in baptism. We rise again to walk in this newness of life that we have professed to walk in. We publicly identify with him as we follow him in baptism, which again represents his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The ordinance of communion traces itself to the large upper room the night before Jesus was betrayed. First, this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread this particular week. This means no Jewish family would have had leavened bread in their home. Therefore, the bread Jesus used was undeniably unleavened bread. Why is this significant? Well, for biblical symbolism. Leaven is often a picture of sin in the Bible, yet Jesus had no sin. And so unleavened bread fits. Also, in the Old Testament, the recipe called for things like oil and salt. Oil often represented the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost. Salt represents righteousness and sanctification, as we are the salt of the earth and should be careful not to lose our savor. So while in today's world Christians might be inclined to dismiss the requirement of unleavened bread as some sort of legalism, it is very important. Just anything won't do. Also, in communion, Jesus passed a cup of the fruit of the vine. It was shared with us last week at our communion service by our guest speaker, Marty Hoskins, that Jews always had an extra cup at communion for Elijah, whom they were waiting for to come. That was likely the cup that Jesus took. He passed it and said, drink ye all of it, as it represented his blood, the New Testament in his blood, which is shed for them. Not only did that wine, and it was very much wine, look like blood, but wine contains alcohol, which is a purifying agent. Christ's blood cleanses us from all iniquity. Also, wine makes the heart merry, and according to the Proverbs, was reserved for those suffering. Certainly, this is a great symbol of the blood of Christ. This communion service shows the Lord's death, according to 1 Corinthians. How so? Well, the bread is broken. Jesus' body was broken for us. The wine is separate from the bread, as Jesus' blood was shed from us, leaving his body. Again, our guest speaker, Marty Hoskins, made the point this past weekend that when the blood and body are separated, the body is dead, showing Jesus' death as the bread and wine are separate on the Lord's table. We very much, as the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26, do show the Lord's death till he come. Lastly, you noticed in each variation of our articles of faith that, number one, the ordinances are for true believers, meaning we only baptize those professing faith— And two, only properly or regularly, 
according to the regulation of Scripture is what that word means, the regulative principle, only properly, regularly baptized members have a right to commune at the Lord's table. This is expressly biblical. Every single person taking communion in the Bible had been previously baptized, and every baptized person had confessed their faith in Christ. By extension of this, we endeavor for a regenerated church body. We enter the church by baptism and gain the right to commune when we do. And if we fall into sin, becoming a castaway, we lose the right to communion, being disciplined by the local church body. To one who knows how precious communion is, losing the right to the Lord's table would be terrible as it is a real and genuine blessing to keep the Lord's ordinances. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.